Welcome to another episode of The Bankable Frontier, the podcast that navigates the contours of financial inclusivity, tech-driven solutions, and sustainable business practices. I'm your host, Emily Thompson, and with me today, I have James Clark. Hi, everybody. Today, we have a special episode that serves as a cornerstone for many riveting conversations to come. That's right. We're diving deep into the imperative of financial inclusion. Now, you might have heard this term thrown around in boardrooms or seen it in policy documents, but what does it really mean? Or more importantly, why should you care? Good question. The short answer is that financial inclusion is not just a buzzword. It's a multidimensional concept that has profound implications for economies, societies and individuals alike. Exactly. It affects us all. Yes. Financial inclusion is at the nexus of economic development and social justice. And as you just said, it's a topic that affects us all, whether we're industry players, policymakers, or simply conscientious citizens. And that's exactly why today's episode is so crucial. It sets the stage for a series of discussions that will explore the nitty-gritty of financial systems, tech innovations, and business ethics. But to appreciate those nuances, we first need to understand the foundational importance of financial inclusion. Well put. Understanding this imperative allows us to frame subsequent conversations in a context that's both broad and deep, touching on economics, ethics, and even geopolitics. Whether you're a visionary industry leader or someone simply intrigued by the transformative power of finance, this episode is your gateway to a world of thought-provoking discussions. So, fasten your seatbelts, listeners. We're about to embark on a journey through the fascinating landscape of financial inclusion. In this episode, James and I will set the stage by tackling a subject of paramount importance, financial inclusion. You've probably heard the term tossed around, especially in the corridors of fintech innovation and economic policy. Many times. So let's unpack what it exactly means. At its core, financial inclusion refers to the availability and equality of opportunities to access financial services. It aims to remove barriers that prevent people from participating fully in the financial systems of their respective countries. And to add nuance to that, financial inclusion isn't just about having a bank account. It encompasses a range of financial services, savings, loans, insurance, and even sophisticated instruments like investments and pensions. The goal is to empower individuals and businesses to cultivate economic stability, make informed choices, and foster growth. Great. It's about providing the tools for people to improve their lives, right? Precisely. It's a holistic approach, looking beyond mere access to ensuring usage and quality of financial services. Authorities ranging from the United Nations to the International Monetary Fund emphasise the multifaceted nature of financial inclusion. So now that we have a grasp on what financial inclusion entails, let's take a step back and look at how we got here. Financial services have come a long way, haven't they? Indeed they have. Historically, financial services were the privilege of the few, mainly the wealthy and businesses, and traditional banking systems were often complex, cumbersome, and quite frankly, unwelcoming to the average individual. I can imagine a time when entering a bank was akin to entering a fortress, not exactly the most inviting atmosphere for the common man. Exactly. But fast forward to today, and we see a transformation. With the advent of technology and regulatory changes, financial services have become more accessible. With online banking, mobile payments, and peer-to-peer -peer lending platforms. 
they all play a role in democratising finance. Yes, and scholars like Greg Mills have even discussed how fintech is a catalyst for bringing financial services to the masses. It's like the walls of the fortress have come down and the drawbridge has been lowered. A fitting metaphor, today's financial landscape is no longer exclusive, it's more inclusive. It invites participation and that's where the essence of financial inclusion lies. A brilliant point. Financial inclusion isn't a mere catchphrase. It's a transformative force with historical roots and contemporary relevance. Let's switch focus and dig into the current state of financial inclusion globally. We're talking numbers, we're talking disparities, and we're talking real-world implications. To set the stage, let's look at some numbers. James, would you believe that nearly 1.7 billion adults in the world remain unbanked? That's according to the latest Global Findex report. That's a staggering figure indeed. And it's not just about being unbanked. There's also a considerable population that's underbanked. Those who have limited access to financial services or use informal financial systems. So it's not just about having a bank account, but about the quality and range of services available. Correct. And these statistics shouldn't just be numbers on a page. They are a call to action. Experts like Dambisa Moyo and Paul Collier often underscore the urgency of addressing this gap. Absolutely, these numbers underscore the need for action. But let's break it down further. There's a distinct disparity between developed and developing nations, isn't there? Right. Financial inclusion is often a tale of two worlds. In developed nations, over 90% of adults have a bank account, whereas in developing economies, the numbers can be startlingly low. For instance, in sub-Saharan Africa, only about 40% of adults are banked, according to the World Bank. That's a significant gap. And it's not just about banking infrastructure, but also about financial literacy, cultural perceptions, and of course, economic stability. Precisely. These disparities show us that financial inclusion is not merely a financial issue, but a complex interplay of social, cultural, and economic factors. And it varies not just between countries, but also within them, urban versus rural men versus women, young versus old. A multifaceted challenge indeed. But it's challenges like these that spur innovation, that drive change. And that's where the excitement lies. Understanding the current state of financial inclusion globally allows us to identify the gaps and thereby the opportunities. It sets the stage for all kinds of innovative solutions. Understanding the problem is the first step to solving it. And what we've discussed provides a comprehensive view of where we stand. But this conversation is far from over. It's merely the beginning. We've set the stage, defining what financial inclusion is all about and exploring its current global state. Now let's get into the meat of the matter. Why does financial inclusion matter? And our first argument centres around its role in economic growth and development. At a fundamental level, financial inclusion acts as a catalyst for economic growth and it's reasonably straightforward. More people participating in formal financial systems means more capital flow, more investments, and ultimately, more economic activity. Absolutely. When individuals and small enterprises gain access to financial services, they can save, invest, and plan for the future. This isn't just good for them. It's good for the economy at large. It's a virtuous cycle of growth. And this isn't just us saying it there's substantial academic backing for this view. Nobel laureate Joseph Stiglitz, for instance, has argued that financial inclusion is crucial for reducing inequality, which in turn promotes economic growth. Yes, 
Stiglitz's work on information asymmetry provides a fascinating framework. He posits that better financial inclusion improves the flow of information in the economy, leading to more efficient allocation of resources and consequently economic growth. That's a strong theoretical framework, but let's ground it in reality. Are there examples of economies that have seen tangible growth through increased financial inclusion? There are several. Take India, for example. The introduction of the Jandan Yojana, a financial inclusion scheme, led to over 300 million new bank accounts. This has had a trickle-down effect, increasing credit availability and boosting entrepreneurship. According to the World Bank, this has contributed to India's economic growth in recent years. That's an impactful example, showcasing how policy and financial innovation can transform an economy. Absolutely, and it's not just India. From Kenya's MPSA to mobile banking initiatives in Bangladesh, financial inclusion has been a driving force behind economic revitalization in various parts of the world. A testament to the transformative power of financial inclusion, indeed. With academia and real-world examples supporting it, the argument for financial inclusion as an engine for economic growth is robust and compelling. Couldn't have put it better myself. Financial inclusion isn't just a social good, it's an economic imperative. After exploring the economic advantages of financial inclusion, it's time to consider another critical facet, its impact on social equality and poverty reduction. Let's shed some light on how financial services can be a tool for social justice. Yes, it's often said that finance is the backbone of the economy, but it's also a catalyst for positive social change. And access to financial services can significantly reduce poverty by enabling people to save, invest and insure themselves against life's uncertainties. Absolutely. Financial inclusion offers people the means to escape poverty cycles. It allows for the accumulation of assets, provides a safety net and opens doors to educational and employment opportunities. It's empowering. And this perspective gains weight when global organisations like the World Bank echo the sentiment. They have often stressed the importance of financial inclusion as a tool for poverty alleviation, haven't they? Yes, the World Bank's reports have consistently highlighted how expanding access to financial services has a multiplier effect on poverty reduction and social equality. By giving people the tools to manage economic hardships, we're also equipping them to improve their social standing. You know how the saying goes, if you give a man a fish, you have fed him for a day. But if you teach him to fish, you have fed him for a lifetime. That's a compelling point. It is, but let's make it real for our audience. Are there success stories or statistics that can illustrate this impact? Certainly. One shining example is that of Brazil, where the expansion of banking correspondence and microcredit programmes in the country has led to positive effects. The European Investment Bank highlights how microcredit loans targeted towards women improve financial inclusion and alleviate poverty, often through innovative lending practices to groups of female entrepreneurs. That's astounding. A real-world example of how financial inclusion translates into social betterment. And it's not just Brazil. Various microfinance initiatives in regions like Southeast Asia have enabled women to start small businesses, directly affecting their social status and reducing gender inequality. So what we're saying is that financial inclusion isn't just about numbers and economic indicators. It's about people, their lives and their societal context. Exactly. Financial inclusion is as much about social justice as it is about economic growth. It's a dual tool capable of reshaping societies while boosting economies. So far, we've discussed how financial inclusion drives economic growth 
and promotes social equality. Now let's delve into its implications for financial stability and security for individuals and nations. Financial stability is often seen as the cornerstone of a well-functioning economy. But how does financial inclusion feed into this stability? Well, it directly contributes to financial stability by broadening the user base of financial services and thereby diversifying risk. On an individual level, access to various financial services helps people manage their finances better, absorb financial shocks, and even contribute to retirement funds. So, it's about building resilience, both for people and the financial system as a whole. Exactly. And this isn't mere speculation. Academic research supports these claims. Studies available in publications like the World Bank Research Observer have found a positive correlation between financial inclusion and economic stability. And it's not just about theoretical models. These studies often employ real-world data to draw their conclusions. Certainly the proof is in the numbers. For instance, after the 2008 financial crisis, countries with higher levels of financial inclusion, such as Canada and Australia, recovered more quickly and experienced less volatility in their financial markets. That's compelling evidence. In this context, financial inclusion seems to serve as a stabilising force, acting as a buffer against economic downturns. It does. And on a national scale, governments benefit from increased tax revenues and a more controllable money supply, thanks to a more financially inclusive environment. In countries like Malaysia and Indonesia, financial inclusion initiatives have been explicitly linked to greater financial stability. So, we're looking at a multi-layered benefit here. Financial inclusion doesn't just empower individuals, it fortifies economies. Precisely. Whether it's a family saving for their child's education or a government better managing its fiscal policy, financial inclusion offers a path to greater stability and security for all. Up to this point, we've examined the economic, social and financial stability arguments for financial inclusion. But there's another lens through which this issue can, and arguably should, be viewed. That of morality. Let's continue to discuss why financial inclusion is not just an economic necessity, but a moral imperative. Yes, many of us look at finance through a pragmatic lens, considering its utility, efficiency and economic benefits. But there's a moral dimension to it as well. So, how do you see financial inclusion fitting into the broader ethical landscape? It's ultimately about human dignity, about giving people the tools they need to take control of their lives, to escape poverty, and to participate in their communities. From a moral standpoint, it's a matter of social justice and equal opportunity. So it becomes a question of right and wrong. Exactly. Ethicists and social critics have long argued that financial systems shouldn't just be impartial in theory, they should be designed to alleviate suffering and promote human well-being. Yes, of course. Philosopher Martha Nussbaum, for instance, talks about the concept of capabilities, arguing that true freedom comes from having the opportunities to make choices that enable us to live a life we have reason to value. So, by denying people access to financial services, we're essentially limiting their freedom and opportunities. Yes, unfortunately. The moral argument is grounded in principles of human rights and social justice. It aligns with what ethicists call distributive justice, which concerns the fair allocation of resources within a society. In essence, financial inclusion isn't just good policy. It's the right thing to do. Precisely. It's an ethical obligation, not just a financial strategy. And, acknowledging this moral imperative, 
adds a layer of urgency to all the economic and social arguments we've discussed before. We've explored the moral imperatives behind financial inclusion, adding a critical ethical layer to our discussion. But let's not forget that finance means business, and businesses need compelling reasons to act. So, what is the business case? It's easy to think of financial inclusion as a charitable endeavour, but it's more than that. There are tangible business benefits. It's a win-win. For financial institutions, it's an untapped market that could potentially translate into increased deposits, loan portfolios and overall customer engagement. So it's not just about doing good, it's also about good business. Exactly. Many key leaders in the fintech and banking industries have spoken about this. And Deloitte Insights discusses that for financial institutions, doing good and doing well no longer need to be separate goals. Based on their research, they emphasise how financial inclusion strategies can lead to customer loyalty and long-term profitability. And it's not just about individual companies. There are sector-wide and even national benefits, correct? Certainly. The return on investment can be considerable. Studies have shown that for every dollar invested in financial inclusion programmes, there's a multiplier effect on economic activity. This indicates that financial inclusion isn't just a cost, but an investment with a substantial return. Exactly. And it goes beyond financial institutions. For governments, a financially inclusive society facilitates more effective monetary policy and fiscal management. It can lead to increased tax revenues and more efficient public services, thanks to a broader and more transparent financial system. So, what we're saying is that the business case for financial inclusion is robust, backed by both industry voices and hard metrics. Precisely. Whether viewed through a moral or business lens, the conclusion is the same. Financial inclusion is imperative. It's both the right thing to do and the smart thing to do. We've journeyed through a myriad of perspectives today, examining financial inclusion from economic, social, moral and business viewpoints. Yes, and all roads lead to one crucial conclusion. Financial inclusion is not just important, it's imperative. Let's recap what we've delved into today. We started by defining financial inclusion, looking at it as not just a buzzword, but a comprehensive concept that involves access, usage and quality of financial services. And we went on to explore its current global state, highlighting the disparities between developed and developing nations and underscoring the urgency of bridging this gap. We also presented the most compelling arguments for financial inclusion, discussing its pivotal role in economic growth, social equality and financial stability. And we didn't stop there. We dug into the ethical and business cases, proving that financial inclusion is both the right thing and the smart thing to do. Which brings us to our final point for today, a call to action. We've laid out the facts and the arguments, but change doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens when each of us takes a step, however small, towards a more inclusive financial landscape. Absolutely. Whether you're an industry player, a policymaker, or just an individual who believes in equitable opportunities, there's something you can do. Take 29, for example, a peer-to-peer -peer fintech platform that's making people bankable. By focusing on leapfrogging markets, 29 serves as the link between merchants and customers, empowering users to build a financial history through next-generation digital payments. That's a fantastic example. And let's remember, the journey towards financial inclusion aligns with broader goals of economic sustainability and social justice. By contributing to this cause, we're not just making a financial impact, we're making a human impact. So there you have it. We've equipped you with the knowledge. Now it's your turn to act.
Well, that brings us to the end of this enlightening episode. We want to extend a heartfelt thank you to all our listeners for tuning in to The Bankable Frontier. We hope that today's discussion has given you fresh insights into the imperative of financial inclusion. And if you found today's episode enlightening, just wait until you hear what we have in store for you next time. Yes, our next episode will dissect the role of digitalization in accelerating financial inclusivity. We'll delve into how digital platforms are not just a passing trend, but a transformative force that brings the unbanked into the financial ecosystem. So, don't miss out. Once again, thank you for joining us here at The Bankable Frontier. Until next time.